0: This is Frank Rausch, the host of the New Books and Christian Studies Network, and I just finished having a fascinating interview with Dr. Ernest Young, the author of Ecclesiastical Colony, China's Catholic Church, and the French Religious Protectorate. Uh, in this very well and thoroughly researched book, using archives from multiple different countries, Dr. Young provides a fascinating look at how the, France... Um, uh, well, successfully established its own religious protectorate in China, presenting itself as the defender of Catholic missionaries of many different countries, not simply French missionaries, and how then this was used to establish the um, French power and French influence in China. Uh, Dr. Young skillfully shows how French, or uh, I should say foreign missionaries, were willing to cooperate with this protectorate, and how um, an alliance between uh, some of these missionaries, though, uh, the Vatican and Chinese Catholics, helped challenge this protectorate. And Dr. Young also skillfully shows how the um, the resistance um, to establishing a truly indigenous uh, Chinese hierarchy and Chinese priesthood um that was caused by this protectorate does cause problems for the Catholic church later on. Once you have the communist takeover, though, the effective challenge to it, um, or I should say the mildly effective challenge to it by the Vatican, some missionaries and uh, Catholics does allow the establishment of some Chinese bishops there, which kind of mitigates um, the pressures brought about by this ecclesiastical colony. Um, So fascinating book, and I hope you will enjoy the interview. Right, hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Ernest Young about his new book, Ecclesiastical Colony, China's Catholic Church and the French Religious Protectorate, uh, published in 2013 by Ox- Oxford University Press. Uh, Dr. Young, welcome to our show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I, I was born in
1: Brooklyn, New York, but brought up mainly in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, and I went to school uh, in Manchester High School. I was actually here in England because of my father being over there for a bit. Uh, but uh, I went through the public schools in Manchester, New Hampshire, and then went to, uh, briefly to a Quaker school in Pennsylvania called George School. And then I went to Harvard University as an undergraduate and uh, spent some time in Japan right after graduating and then came back to uh, to Harvard Graduate School where I got myself into Asian Studies and into the History PhD program there. Uh, So I finally got a, a, a doctorate degree there. And uh, since then, uh, I taught first at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and then uh, at the University of Michigan, where I uh, finished my career and retired uh, a few years ago. Uh, Is that that's a sketch?
0: (laughs) Okay. And how did you make a shift over then from? You said you'd spent time in Japan. How did you end up in chi- interested in China?
1: Well, uh there were lots of uh, accidents, you might say, in the in in the playing out of all this. Uh, when I finished college, uh, I uh, had, was going to go to law school, but a friend of mine, a classmate who was Japanese, I uh, said, how about you'd like to go to Japan to teach English and that sounded more interesting <laughs> so I went to Japan <laughs> and while I was there I decided it was my first exposure to Asia. I hadn't studied it at all in college but then um, I got interested, started learning Japanese and decided I would like to try it out in graduate school so I went back to school. And in the graduate program where I was, uh, it happened at that time that the Japanese program was, I think, lagging some. And the Chinese side of things was very active and much more enticing. So I gradually shifted over into the Chinese history, retaining an interest always in the Japan side as well. And my teaching has been about both China and Japan.
0: And how then did you uh, come to have an interest in Catholicism in Japan and and specifically the French per- I'm sorry Catholicism in China yeah. and specifically the French religious protectorate?
1: Yes, well that was uh, again uh, not anticipated. Uh, I was doing research uh, on some other topic altogether in the National Archives in Britain, the English uh, the Foreign Ministry archives there. And I happened to come across, uh, it was a, I was pursuing a Chinese topic, but I happened to come across this rather uh, wonderful collection of documents about a particular incident uh, where uh, three British subjects were. Uh, killed in the course of a riot in
2: nineteen
1: oh six. And it was so much fuller than anything I'd ever seen before. I really got interested and I decided this is a topic I I couldn't you know, I should do something with this. But it turned out and right right away, I discovered that the crux of it was really the French and the French Catholics in this same city of Nanchang in central China. And I so I said, well, what's going on here? Uh, and I explored the French side, and I decided I should go to Paris and do uh, investigations on the French documents, since the British were really, uh, the French were really the primary actors in this whole whole thing. And uh, I just got fascinated by the whole idea of the French religious protectorate, which I've got, I you know, I'd heard, I think there was such a thing, but I'd never looked at it carefully. And the more I looked at it, the more extraordinary it seemed to me. It was ambitious, pretentious, and, uh, you know, almost a little crazy. Uh, so I, I became uh, fascinated by this phenomenon, and uh, and one thing led to another. Uh, so I, uh, I pursued it, uh, pursued the topic. I had, had to study some Italian because I knew I would end up going to Rome and studying uh, the, uh, using the the uh, archives of the Vatican there, and also various religious archives of religious organizations in both France and in. Uh, in in, in in Italy, so uh, anyway that uh, and it was fortunately a, uh, a publication of uh, major collections of Chinese documents uh, about missions, so I was able to use the, the library for that sort of thing and uh, uh, that that became eventually this book all that work
0: right when it really shows i mean the amount of work this is just uh, for our listeners this is just a, it's a very Long and rich book with a huge amount of footnotes that show all this this uh, great archival research um, that you were able to do. Yeah. So well, I wondered that that if you, <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wonder that if you can start us off just telling us how what is the French religious protectorate and how did it get set up? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know
1: the Catholic Church had has a presence in China for quite a long time uh, continuously from the late 16th century. There had been some missionary work in in earlier dynasties uh, but it it hadn't been continuous but from the late 16th century there's always been a catholic church in china some kind or other Um, but there was a long stretch uh, from 1724 until the 1840s when it was proscribed Uh, at you know, in the late 16th and in the, through the 17th century, they'd been pretty much open. Uh, there were problems, but uh, the missionaries were able to come most of the time and can and do their work. But from 18, 1724, they were excluded legally, um, prescription by the government. Uh, there was been arguments about certain rights that they. Uh, Rome decided uh, were unacceptable for Catholics, and the emperor was didn't uh, disagree with them. <laughs> one thing led to another, so Catholicism became illegal in china uh, and uh, but then, in the nineteenth century in the eighteen forties uh Western countries used their industrialized military power to compel China uh, to allow a uh, Western Presence, a bigger one, there had been also a very small one from, by merchants, but uh, and, that, and that was much enlarged, and by 1860, the country as a whole was uh, fully open to missionaries and their evangelism. Uh, and the missionaries won exceptional privileges in this new system that had been forced on China uh, by Western military power, And that includes right to buy land, uh, to build churches and other buildings, uh, and to request Chinese official protection against any discrimination. Uh, Now, the French government had played a role in the missionaries' acquisition of these uh, privileges, and the, the, the French government declared itself to be the protector of all Catholics in China. They called this the their French religious protectorate. So it was extravagant, as I said uh, already when I first met this. Uh, how it, its reach was rather extraordinary. It was not just French missionaries who were to be protected, but all Catholic missions. Uh, this included Spanish missions, had been around for a long time, and the Italian, Belgian, German, Austrian, Irish missions. All of them were now going to be protected by the French. Uh, authorities. Even more extraordinarily, even Chinese Catholics were now going to be protected by France, which is, is sort of an odd circumstance, uh, it, it, standing between French Chinese subjects and their emperor.
2: Um,
1: and through the use of these special privileges, and the backing of French power, including warships in Chinese waters, uh, the missionaries became uh, locally very important figures, and their Chinese Catholic constituents enhanced their local clout through all this support. So unsurprisingly, uh, this situation evoked much local resentment and this resentment uh, was sometimes combined with very hostile suppositions of, uh, on the part of the neighbors of these Chinese Christians about the behavior of the Catholic missionaries, about the behavior of Chinese Catholics, and there were stories of black magic and child abuse and many other things, all coming out, I think, of this sort of this uh, environment that uh, uh, produced hostility. and One major result of all this was the many incidents of hostilities, including serious violence, beatings, burnings, killings, and the French diplomatic authorities undertook to compel the Chinese government to punish the culprits of any such incident, to uh, indemnify the Christians and the missions, pay them money for what they suffered, and to discipline Chinese officials who had not prevented the trouble. So this is how the French religious protectorate structured itself. Uh, And uh, there were lots of ironies in it. Uh, But one point about it was that the legalities of this protectorate were unclear in terms of international law of the time. Uh, By what right or by whose authority did France protect all these Catholics in China? The short answer was that there were these treaties that had been signed by the Chinese government with foreign powers, including France. Um, And The treaties did provide uh, for Christians to be able to practice their religion, for missionaries to evangelize, but there was no provision that said the French would police this. So the French religious protectorate depended on Catholic missionary bishops coming with complaints to French diplomats who would then, in turn, pressure Chinese officials to satisfy the complaints. Now, uh, this structure had many enemies. Uh, Chinese officials were pushed around by it and sometimes demoted uh, from their, in their uh, official careers under French pressure. And countries other than France that had their own Catholic missionaries in China like this presumption of France protecting their nationals and always looking for ways of trying to get, get around this French uh, claim. And it turned out that uh, popes, at least some of them, were unhappy with this French, uh, with French diplomats having such a central position in the workings of the Catholic Church in China, in effect standing between the Pope and his Chinese Church. Now a large point that comes out of all this is that France could not force the bishops to come to French officials with their complaints. Uh, So the system of the French religious protectorate depended on their doing so, so that the French would have an occasion to uh, show their power and to demonstrate uh, their position as a great power in China. Uh, So the French authorities were always trying to show the bishops and the Vatican how important French role was for Catholicism in China. And the result, I think, was that they overdid it. Uh, They rushed in to support the missions irrespective of the facts. And uh, the Chinese noticed this (laughs) and uh, came to their own conclusions about all this system. Um, And the Chinese side tried to do various things about it. Uh, one uh, crisis occurred in 1885-86 when the Chinese government, trying to get around the French religious protectorate, offered the Vatican direct diplomatic relations between the Vatican and the Chinese government. Now, the French government, which know, as soon as it heard about this, was dead set against it because it feared that if it occurred, if the Chinese government had direct relations with the Vatican, the missionary bishops would take their troubles to the Pope's representative in Beijing instead of the French diplomats. There was no papal representative at the time, but that would have been created by diplomatic relations. Uh, so if that had happened, this French prestige in China, which was built around this French religious protectorate, would be gravely damaged. So the French government felt very threatened itself and decided to uh, present the Pope with an ultimatum uh, saying they would take retribution against the Catholic Church in France if the Vatican went through with it. So the, the, the French government used the fact of France, being a primarily Catholic country, as a kind of hostage <clears throat> to force the Vatican to uh, drop this idea, and the Pope did indeed back down that was something he couldn 't face so uh, this is the kind of thing that happened under these circumstances. It shows how you know there was a problem uh, always with this whole arrangement. Um, but it persisted, a similar round of this sort of in efforts to establish diplomatic relations between the Chinese government and the Vatican occurred in 1918. Um, <clears throat> so the ironies of all this, uh, through the 19th century in particular, and into the early 20th, were compounded by the fact that the French government from the 1880s, well, from 1879, was quite anti-clerical. In its pol- its domestic policy in France. Uh, so people notice this, right? <laughs> that the French government in France was sort of against the church, but in China it was defending the church. Uh, and the- it was following this dictum, which one of the prime ministers announced openly that anti-clericalism is not for export. That is to say, it's fine in France, but uh, elsewhere we defend the church." Uh, it seemed kind of cynical to a lot of observers. So all this while, incidents of hostility and violence directed against the missions continued. Uh, the most famous case is the Boxer Uprising 1900, a spectacular event, but also before and after that huge event. Uh, violence occurred frequently. Uh, and they 'd also by in the late nineteenth century occasionally I think a lot of us would be surprised by this, but b- between Catholics and Protestant communities in China uh fought against each other actually were serious silence between the two communities, small as they were, as a percentage of the Chinese population. They nevertheless were spreading and uh, Ch- Protestant communities were new from the middle of the 19th century but were growing rapidly and a large number of Protestant missionaries, British and American primarily. Um, so. Uh, this is sort of where I came in uh, when, I asked, when you asked about how I got into this uh, in this, uh, 1906 there was this major incident in an important Chinese city in the center of the country uh, <clears throat> and there were nine foreigners were killed by a mob in retribution for what they thought had been an attack by on the part of the Catholic, head of the Catholic mission in the city uh, against a an imperial official who died from having his throat cut. <laughs> um, the, the actual details of this take a while to go into, but the point was that uh, this is a rather sensational incident. There have been others uh, like it, much bigger in the Boxer occasion, but others uh, in, in other times that were similar, but this was one of the big ones. And there was a dire fallout from this affair. Um, and there was the, uh, at the same time, in the early 20th century, there was the spread of nationalist sentiment in the Chinese population. Uh, and so uh, the, the the French governments uh, saw the things that reps got too far and wanted to pull back from the extremes of confrontation between the missions and the non-Christian Chinese. And uh, so foreign diplomats saw need saw a need to moderate their the intrusiveness, and the Chinese nationalists were focused now on national strength rather than these community violence uh, events they saw attacks on missionaries and Christians as a kind of distraction from the main issues, so it moderated somewhat uh but but here we have i think uh, you know the moment where we we change the emphasis of what we're talking about to uh the uh, effort uh, to undo this relationship of the Catholic Church uh, with uh, the French position in in China. And uh, so I I would transition to the next theme, which is the recognition by some missionaries and by officials in the Vatican that things have got off track. What are we going to do about it? Um, So I uh, this is where I would introduce the figure of Vincent Leb. Uh, his his name, his last surname is spelled L-E-B-B-E. Uh, I think in Flemish, which it's a Flemish name, it would be Lebbe. But he was a French speaker, and they apparently had a, just the one syllable Leb. Anyway, he was a key figure in formulating a new perspective. Mm-hmm. And giving it the public attention, he arrived in China in 1901, the year after the Boxer Uprising. And by the end of the decade, he had committed himself to uh, refashioning uh, the relations of the Church with Chinese society. Uh, and uh, I would say he had two central propositions. One was that the Church itself, the Church, should rid itself of the of French protection. And the second was that it should signify that is it should establish the dignity uh dignity for Chinese priests and a there should be a Chinese hierarchy for the church, that is to say, there should be Chinese bishops and I haven't said this yet, but throughout all this uh there have been Chinese priests way back uh going from the in the seventeenth century they to beginning to uh train and uh, Chinese Catholic priests, and they were a, uh, there was a number of them, but they were never a given uh, leadership positions. Even when the, uh, there was the prescription of the church and where missionaries did come risk their lives by doing so and had to be hidden all the time and so forth, still uh, the hierarchy was always foreign. Uh, the, the Europeans uh, continued to claim throughout all of this the leadership positions in the church. Right. Uh, so uh, the issue of of whether there should be Chinese issues was very large. There had been one exception back in the end of the um, 17th century, that Rome had kind of intervened and appointed some Chinese priest as a bishop. Uh, there was resistance locally, but he he, he did get the job. Uh, but he was the only one in the whole time uh, up until uh, the early 20th century. So. Uh, this was one of the uh, the propositions that Vincent Leb this reforming Belgian missionary had um and indeed he felt and this was sort of the logic of the situation that the only way to get rid of this french religious protectorate would be to have the church run by chinese bishops hmm. Um, if it were Chinese bishops, then the French religious protectorate could not operate any longer, since it depended on foreign bishops coming with their complaints, um, and the Ch- Chinese bishops would be can, could be counted on not to do that. Um, <clears throat> so, from this point of view, having foreign bishops not only made the church look foreign, which it certainly did, but uh, they also these foreign bishops enjoyed too much. The comforts of French protection, and would never willingly give it up. So you had to get rid of them, uh, and have them replaced by Chinese leaders. Uh, so uh, this—he wasn't the only person having these thoughts I think—but he just became, in effect, the spokesperson for it. The most well-known advocate of all this, and a very active guy, he was the leading missionary in the northern city of Tianjin, which is not too far from Beijing. Uh, he was appointed there to run the operation uh, in 1906 and he stayed until 1916. So he had 10 years there of sort of experimenting with these policies. Uh, he joined with the leading citizens in the city in charitable works and in patriotic work. And he founded a Chinese daily newspaper that uh, became the leading newspaper of North China uh, and he encouraged the patriotism of his parishioners, um, best he could. Uh, so uh, one could talk uh, quite a lot about who, the details of his uh, ministry there in Tianjin, but it came to a crisis when, in 1916, he wrote a letter to the top French diplomat in Beijing protesting uh what had been underway for a couple of years uh, the French claim to expand their position in Tianjin this, this uh, northern city the the chief commercial city really right in north china uh, and this I guess yet take a, a, a moment to explain what concessions were in China that it was sort of an odd thing where Foreign uh, representatives negotiated with local governments or with the national government uh, the rights of special residence and privilege in parts of major Chinese cities, and they were called concessions. They were still Chinese territory legally, but the foreign uh, representatives, usually consuls, uh, would in effect be the... The, the managers of these areas where the foreigners would set up their own rules and uh, have even a small police force often of their own, uh, and Chinese would come only under the conditions that the foreigners set for these parts of the city. Now, Shanghai, which had started out in the early 19th century, is not a very large town, uh, <clears throat> became the major foreign uh, city in the country and the the international settlement and the French concession, both concessions basically, to bite their names, um, <clears throat> became the center of that city. <clears throat> in other places, not necessarily quite so central, but still... Um, Places that the, French, the foreigners sort of the, turned into um, enclaves for themselves, right. adjacent to or in, inside sometimes the uh, major cities of the country. So Tianjin had had these; they had a French one, and the French uh, wanted to expand it beyond what it was because the British was larger, and they were envious and so forth. So. Uh, the uh, French set about trying to do this, and they eventually decided they would just announce that they were taking over this stretch of land near the existing French sub concession, making it about twice as large. And the excuse right. that they gave was they were protecting the Catholic Church. Well Leb in his letter to the French uh, minister that stopped diplomat in Beijing, said this was a terrible idea uh and uh excoriated the the French for for trying to do this and he um, and the French government in turn then sought his expulsion from China, saying that he was confessing to being a kind of traitor to the French religious protectorate and so forth, accusing him of all sorts of things. <clears throat> And his his own ecclesiastical superiors, the bishop under, to whom he had to respond, and eventually the head of his order back in Paris too, they all cooperated in this effort to ease him out. Uh, they first sent him to other places in China, and then finally back to France. So he was exiled uh, from Tianjin, where he had established all these connections and had become a public figure, actually. Well, the news of this turmoil in the city of Tianjin um, over this attempted expansion uh, of the French concession, which produced, among other things, a workers strike in the city uh, <clears throat> and and then the exile of the extremely popular Father Leb. Um, all the, this news uh, reached the Vatican, uh, and Leb and his sympathizers—he had people who were working with him in all this—they uh, inundated the Vatican with essays and petitions <laughs> about what was going on, and advocating these uh policies that uh, getting rid of the french religious protectorate and and most importantly uh, having chinese bishops for the church in china uh well remarkably the message got through <laughs> um one wouldn't necessarily expect that it would, but, but it, because it's a very hierarchical uh, organization, right, right. Yeah, the Church, but it did get through. And after all, you could remember that the Vatican had its own history of being frustrated by France in its shaping of its own China policies, but going back to that moment in the middle 1880s when the French used the French Church in, China, in France as a kind of a uh, hostage to pre- prevent the Vatican from making relations with China. And there's the recent sabotaging in 1918. Uh, uh, well, this comes after uh, Leb's exile, but they, they, that, that was uh, in the minds of the Vatican in the late uh, end of the first, second decade of the 20th century. So uh, <coughs> Pope Benedict the 15th. Uh, took the bull by the horns and he issued a scathing critique of the missions in 1919. I think a lot of people were surprised by this. (laughs) Um, Right. It it was... uh, uh, there was a buildup to it. They didn't do this overnight, but uh, they've been since 1916 anyway, and perhaps even and going back to the complaints from the 19th century. Uh, they've been uh, you know, moving up toward this uh, position of doing something about the situation in China. Now, in Pope Benedict's uh, pronouncement, it was technically an apostolic letter, but everybody called it an encyclical, which is very similar. Uh, he didn't single out the Chinese case, uh, but it was clearly the example that was on his mind. And, uh, uh, and the background to this, I guess you might say, is that it had been the papal policy, publicly anyway, their pronounced policy, since the 17th century, uh, when the uh, when they sort of got serious about global uh, missionary work. Uh, it had been a primary goal since then of the missions that they should raise up an indigenous clergy and then hand over the management of the church, the local church, to them, to this indigenous clergy, with the missionaries moving on to other challenges. (laughs) But this hadn't happened, except for the one case I mentioned already, the Chinese bishop in the late 17th century appointed by Rome. And the evidence is that the European hierarchy in China as well as most of the ordinary missionaries wanted to keep it that way, uh, having Europeans in charge. And they openly feared, you can find statements uh, they made about this, they openly feared that there would be a takeover of the Chinese church by Chinese priests. So. you could say that uh, the situation in China uh, amounted to a centuries-long disregard of what was formal papal policy. Uh, and uh, Pope Benedict uh, the Fifteenth, in his pronouncement on all this, uh, uh, noted this fact,
2: <laughs>
1: and he criticized uh, the fact that the China missions had not produced... Uh, a clergy that had great had dignity and stature and did not produce Chinese bishops. Uh, he also criticized the linguistic deficiency of the foreign missionaries and the and implied and unfavorable evaluation of their overall quality. <clears throat> so this was a fairly strong and harsh statement um, criticizing the uh, that condition of, of the missions. Um, now the response of the missionaries in China uh, as well as I would have to say the Catholic missionary organizations with their headquarters in Europe it was heavily negative uh, they said uh, the Pope had been misinformed <laughs> that he'd been deceived he'd been right, deceived yes. <laughs> by the likes of Vincent Leb about the state of the Catholic Church in China and its real problems <clears throat> so um You know, the Vatican uh, became aware of this resistance to its reformist orientation. Um, And about three years later, 1922, the Vatican, under a new pope, Pius the uh, Benedict XV had died. Pius XI was uh, in place, and he uh, sent a papal representative to China uh, to live there on a long-term basis and to implement. The Vatican's reform ideas. And it's important, I think, that these ideas, uh, which were formulated first by Benedict XV, were supported not just by that pope and then his successor, but also, very importantly, by the head of the propaganda, that is to say, the Vatican's central office for missions. Has um, many you know, other names you can call it, but that uh, it, traditionally, that uh, just calling it propaganda has been common. Uh, so the head of that, uh, under Benedict the Fifteenth, and who was kept on by the next Pope, uh, and the Secretary of State, who is in effect the Pope's foreign minister, those two people, the people who happened to be in those positions at that time, were also very supportive of these reform ideas. So the the top, you might say, the top three people that are concerned with all this in the Vatican, uh, were behind this. So it was fairly powerful, and they, as uh, just said, sent a representative to China, a, what they called an apostolic delegate, who would represent the Pope uh, in, in China to, for, for spiritual religious purposes, not as a diplomat, um, but as a representative of, of the Church. So for about a decade, there was uh, a concerted effort from Rome and then through this papal representative in China to refashion China's Catholic Church. Um, Not overnight. Uh, When the Vatican moves, it usually does so cautiously and gradually. But but by 1926, (laughs) the Pope himself uh, summoned six Chinese priests to Rome. And consecrated them as bishops in St. Peter's. <laughs> and the uh, apostolic delegate uh, forcefully negotiated jurisdictions for these new Chinese bishops in China. Uh, and incidentally, uh, Leb, Vincent Leb, who'd been exiled in Europe, was able to return to China uh, with one of these Chinese bishops newly created. And uh, he, uh, Took up his, his his work in China until he died in 1940. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> more Chinese bishops were to follow these initial six, and other changes were instituted, including better language Chinese language training for European missionaries. But these European missionaries did continue to predominate numerically, even as Chinese priests uh, gradually acquired some positions of responsibility. So. Um, that's, I think, the most important part of the story. The, the, but you have to say that the French government, had, which had, had tolerated the fait accompli, this, uh, this appointment of a apostolic delegate, a papal, dele- res- papal delegate resident in China, they had uh, rather reluctantly said, oh, okay, we can't do much about that. It's sort already of happened. But they weren't reconciled to the gradual Sinicization of the Chinese Church—that is to say, the substitution, the exchange of European bishops for Chinese Uh, bishops—they couldn't stop it altogether, but they certainly wanted to draw a line. And at the end of the 1920s, the French government mounted a serious, strenuous campaign, with the help of some European bishops in China, to check this process. And in particular, they wanted to prevent having a Chinese bishop in Beijing. Uh, with all the consequences of the valuable property there and so forth, it was a major center for the Catholicism in China, that whole area. And uh, under this... uh, Concentrated effort to stop it, the Vatican did retreat from its forward movement. It didn't renounce its policy publicly, but it sort of uh, it tapered off. <clears throat> and uh, along, uh, one of the reasons I think was that the leadership in Rome did not keep its, uh, did not sustain its focus on this sinification notion. And the heads of the uh, these two important organizations, in in the, in Rome, the the propaganda and the secretary of state, both were um, taken over by new prelates, new leaders who were not so keen on the policy, or at least weren't committed to it the same way. Uh, and the apostolic, this reformist apostolic delegate that they'd sent back in 1922, he resigned in 1933. Uh, and the percentage of Chinese bishops as a total of all the, the Catholic bishops in China has stopped growing. Uh, it's it stuck at less than right. 20% of the bishops were Chinese. Uh, so there'd been some accomplishment in that decade. From 22 to 33, but uh, it, it it didn't continue really uh, without. There was, as I say, no formal uh, abdication from the policy, but it just wasn't pushed anymore. And the uh, resistance to it uh, was, uh, you could say, successful at least in uh, stopping its forward movement. That is until after World War II, and then we're near the end of the story when. Uh, this after World War II, there was sort of a global politics of decolonization, and the French religious protectorate uh, formally came to an end because the treaties on which it was based were uh, dissolved. Uh, in this period, the Vatican established a new hierarchy in China with a somewhat larger proportion of Chinese bishops and archbishops including the first Chinese cardinal, but the hour was late. A Civil War was starting in 1946, leading to the victory of the communists in 1949. And at that point, uh, while there were about over, over uh, the number isn't certain, but over 3 million uh Catholic faithful in China, Um, the the church was still, although there had been some increase in the proportion of Chinese leaders, they were still dominated by foreign bishops when the communists came to power uh these foreign bishops soon left or were expelled or in a few cases were jailed um but um, it 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 was it, it was sort of a collapse for the moment uh at the leadership level because uh, the, the Chinese were not in positions of authority, in sufficient numbers to uh, keep the church going fully at that time, and the, so that presented the new problem: how do you replace the bishops that are gone? <clears throat> and that's a, a right. new a new set of political issues <laughs> with the communist uh, Chinese Communist Party in power. <clears throat> so, I, by summary, I would say that the Catholic Church in China has had a long and variegated history. And I've only dealt right. with a part of it, uh, leaving out which what transpired before 19th century and what has happened since the middle of the 20th century. But in the roughly 100 years I do treat, uh, it could say that it's a mixed record for the politics of the Catholic Church in China. I don't try to, in my book, don't describe the evangelism and the charitable works of the missionaries, which is obviously a very big component of what they thought they were doing. <clears throat> but uh, but it's this political side that I focus on, and uh, then this foreign foreign sorry this foreign hierarchy which ran the church, understandably perhaps, but with serious long term deficits, accepted and encouraged these links with the power politics of France, and eventually the European states too, which is <clears throat> a minor part of the story. Uh, And it seems to me that the results contributed in major ways to the worsening of China's relationships with the Western world in in this period. And it's remembered today in China, uh, unfavorably, primarily mostly. But there was also this major resistance within the church to this fateful alliance of the church and secular power. And all along, there had been some discontent with this bubbling under the surface, but it was in the early 20th century that it boiled over and produced an epic battle in which the Vatican itself was engaged. Uh, So in any overall evaluation of the period, one might say that this effort at recovery Although it turned out to be not enough, it was surely a redeeming element in the story, <clears throat> so that's i leave that with this mildly optimistic note that <laughs> there was there were different elements in all of this, and uh it was a complicated story in which there were uh some some heroes i think uh in in the in the right. so uh that's where I start if
0: there's anything further you would like me to
1: delve into, I'd be
0: happy to. Well, thank you. That, that was a wonderful summary of the book. And um, you had mentioned there this idea that, you know, there's some heroes like uh, Father Laib. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, the Chinese uh, laymen yes. especially and, and the other Chinese yes. who assisted yes. Father Laib. Yes, well, that's yes. certainly an interesting part of the story. And
1: uh, it, it's a little hard to get at the voice of the Chinese clergy. Uh, every once in a while it breaks through um, but because it, it's part of the hierarchical character of the Catholic Church that you uh, you couldn't communicate <laughs> with the world except through the bishop and it was the bishop who was the problem <laughs> so, it, Right. We, we've experienced <laughs> some of that in, in, in our own uh, troubles <clears throat> these days but uh, so every, every once in a while you do get a glimmer of that uh, there's one case where the lay people the Catholic lay people decided back in the um, I think it was the 1880s <clears throat> that, that no, maybe 1890s that they, they were upset with their bishop <clears throat> and he was obviously a bad, bad news for the Chinese Catholics in the area <clears throat> and they went to their Catholic priests Chinese priests and said why don't you Tell the Vatican about this, and they say, "Well, we can't because we have to do it through the bishop. Only might communicate, and he's the problem." That sort of thing. So you do you do get occasional voices uh, coming through, but in the early twentieth century, uh, there's some prominent Catholic laymen who speak out very strongly about all this, and one of them is the founder of an important newspaper. The Dagongbao, and the name of a newspaper which still continues today, it had a. Uh, uh, they gave it a foreign French title, impar- impartial, impartial, which is, I guess, uh, not a bad translation for the Chinese. Anyway, uh, it was a very uh, important newspaper at the, in the early 20th century, and has had this descendants even today. <clears throat> and he was a uh, convert, convert um, to Catholicism and he um, and he uh, was a vigorous reformer and his his, his newspaper uh was a major uh, a major feature of the early 20th century scene and he continued to be very friendly uh with the catholic uh, church in the large but he uh, had his problems with the hierarchy um uh, he the, he, the Bishop in Beijing wanted him to tow certain political lines, and uh, he said, "No, I won't." And he gave back the investment money that the bishop had given him, and uh, right. he, uh, he recruited other funds from the general population. Anyway, he's one of them. And then there was a Xingyinjue, is his name, uh, and then there's a, a Ma Changbo, who I talk about some, uh, some in the book, and he was a uh, uh, from an old Catholic family. Actually, his in his Side. He went back to the Ming Dynasty, way back to 14th century. Uh uh any not that's wrong, what am I saying? Anyway, uh he uh um uh, he he was a uh, Catholic trained as a uh, went to the Catholic school back in the in the uh 1860s. <clears throat> And became a priest, actually, but then uh, felt he wasn't being treated properly by the foreigners who were in charge of his fate, and he quit and uh, had a very uh, prestigious uh, Government career uh, were in the Chinese government, <clears throat> uh, and then eventually he reconciled himself uh, with the church again, back in the 19 in the, in the 1890s, and continued as a very uh, prominent intellectual figure in China generally. Uh, but he remained a, a Catholic and good friends of, with Leb and his friends too, and wrote uh, publicly about his complaints with how the Chinese church looked too foreign, it had all these foreign uh, bishops in it, and they pointed out that uh, we don't have this problem with Buddhists or with Muslims, even though these religions are as foreign as the Catholic Church. They come from other countries and were originally in other languages, uh, but it's the Catholic Church <clears> that looks so foreign because <laughs> excuse me, all its leaders are, are foreign and we must do something about that and so forth. He was instrumental in founding uh, several institutions of higher learning. Um, Aurora College, college, which became a university, uh, with his own money and and the land and so forth he founded. But then he went on to help found what's uh, Fudan University, one of the most distinguished uh, universities in China today. And then later on, he played a role in founding another university in Beijing. Um, Fu Ren, which continues in Taiwan today. Anyway, uh, he was an uh, a important spokesperson for all of this and uh, worked with Leb and others uh, to, to do something about it. Uh, and then we have, uh, in 1920, a series of statements made by uh, both uh, both Catholic priests and Catholic laymen uh, in response to uh the uh, a uh, request by the pope that people uh, tell him <laughs> what's going on in China and uh right i don't think that they expected to get this uh, outburst but there were a number of uh, major statements made uh, collectively by um, lay and, and priestly catholics um addressing the pope and telling him uh what a set of problems there are in China, and complaining about the current situation. This was uh, around 1919, 1920. Um, <clears throat> so these sorts of things continued uh, right up until the end. Uh, before, as the communists came in, there were always important Catholics who were uh, making statements uh, about how things should change, and often working in that direction and making having some effect.
0: Right. It's really fascinating. I was really glad to see that you were able to, to capture that. And I also – one thing I thought was really fascinating about Father Leib was that you'd, you'd mentioned how he'd become very, very popular, but he was working in Tianjin, which has a very checkered history regarding Catholicism. How did he turn so, this around? Or I, I should ask for um, – what happened there, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Chinese history, and how yeah, did he turn well, it around? Uh, there've
1: been uh, two major moments before he arrived uh, that suggested this uh, it's, it's a very problematic place for Catholics. The first was in 1870 when uh, there was a uh, set of charges by local folks against the Catholic Church and by the and the uh, uh, the orphanage that was being run by Catholic nuns uh, claiming that they were abusing the children and uh, engaging in uh, atrocious magical acts using children's bodies and stuff like that. Uh, And the French consul, uh, the local French diplomatic representative there, he got involved and he actually, uh, it, it was very hot. Uh, and uh, there were people trying to settle the thing, but this consul uh, sh- t- took out a gun and started shooting. It <laughs> killed a Chinese right. a Chinese official out in the public street, and this produced a riot. Uh, so a number of people were killed, some, I forget, seven, nine, 20 or so. Foreigners were killed, and lots of Chinese Catholics were killed, <clears throat> and the uh, buildings were burned and so forth. And so this so-called Tianjin Massacre... Uh, was a major event and uh, caused all kinds of diplomatic consequences. Uh, and then again, in the Boxer uh, episode, when there was this Boxer uprising, um, Tianjin was one of the cities uh, where the the Boxers, the anti-Christian, popular movement, uh, created a lot of destruction. <laughs> and. Uh, so yes, there was this, uh, you might say, almost anti-Christian tradition in Tianjin, and one of the reasons Leb was appointed by his bishop to run the place was that nobody else would take the job. <laughs> but Leb, right. Leb uh, he turned it around. Uh, and he was, uh, This is part of why he's so prominent, I think. He was just an extraordinary guy who had great skills. Uh, in various dimensions. Uh, first of all, linguistically, he uh, learned Chinese quickly and well and never stopped improving his Chinese and he became a, a very popular public speaker. He could uh, entrance audience, large Chinese audiences with his uh, lectures in Chinese. <clears throat> and um, he also very deliberately uh, tried to be friendly with uh, important people in the community, uh, not non-Christians, and, <clears throat> and joined uh, all sorts of charitable organizations that were, again, not necessarily Christian. In fact, some of them were clearly not at all Christian, but he felt he should be uh, contributing to the general public welfare, <clears throat> and uh, he made a lot of friends. Um, people who uh, admired him enormously uh, so he he it was a it was personality and he was also aesthetic aesthetic, aesthetic and uh you know he lived a uh, puritan kind of life and uh, he was admired for that too i think by a lot of the chinese uh, people who can, knew about him so he became kind of famous and
2: uh,
1: uh well known uh quite beyond the catholic church uh, so when, they, when he was exiled, <clears throat> there were a lot of protests, uh, not just by Catholics, but by non-Catholics, too. said, this guy is very important to our community, and we want him back. <laughs> and they, So that was one of the reasons I think the Vatican got involved, because they were, became aware that they had this rather exceptional guy out there who, who was saying things that were uncomfortable for the hierarchy, and they wanted to hear him, and they did. So that's my short version of uh, why he was. He ended up uh, in the 1930s. deciding that the big issue for China was uh, the aggression of the Japanese starting off in Manchuria and then more broadly. And he uh, felt that as a somebody who was committed to China, he should be helping the resistance to Japan. And uh, he ended up his days uh, engaged in that sort of thing in Medical Corps, uh, <clears throat> organizing people to, to support uh, the resistance to Japan. Didn't he try and organize a Catholic well, army? Well, he talked about it. Uh, the, the Chinese government of the time decided, no, they didn't want to do that. Uh, but he did have a uh, medical corps, <clears throat> and, um, stretcher bearers. <clears throat> and he also recruited, uh, the, the, these were religious types, that is, the brothers. He had sort of established a uh, a, a religious order. And uh, he, the people who were in that, both female and male, who uh, helped out in this medical work, support being sort of backup to the, to the army, the Chinese army. <clears throat> but he apparently also recruited uh, non-religious people, as sharp Catholics, <laughs> who would be sharpshooters, who would, who would actually engage in <laughs> battle. How much that actually happened, I'm not sure but he was he was made a given mil, military rank by the chinese government at the time uh, eventually a, a general he was given the rank of a general He became a Chinese citizen? Yes, he did. Uh, This was unusual, I think, Uh, uh, but uh, I haven't found other cases of people who actually went all the way. Uh, Before his exile, he'd begun to look into it, but then he was off in Europe for six years. And When he came back, one of the first things he worked at was uh, was to become a Chinese citizen, gave up his Belgian citizenship. And he also left his the religious order he'd been in uh, because he was otherwise under its discipline, and uh, it was a great impediment to his the freedom of his activities uh, that he had to uh, if he was in that uh, that order. Up to that point, he was technically obeyed all the orders given him, but uh, it was obviously a problem. And since he created his own religious orders there in China, he I mean, he had one he could join up. With, without, without being homeless <laughs> to anymore. Except I did have a bishop. You could have your day, own order, bishop, and uh, well, it, <clears throat> that, that made things easier.
0: This is a, a fascinating story, and uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, so. I'd like to end then with the traditional New Books Network question. Uh, what are you working well, on now? Well, I, uh, I'm retired
1: and, uh, I don't have any major project, um, underway. I have a lot of material from this, uh, one I've completed that became the book and I have various thoughts about how I might make articles here and there. I accumulate a lot of data, uh, which I haven't, uh, fully used yet, um, including about the finances of the, of the missions. Uh, Which is kind of interesting, um, how they became actually kind of wealthy because the French government was giving them, uh, was managing to extract from the Chinese government lots of indemnities. And they, uh, especially in the wake of the Boxer uprising, but even before that, they uh, had been accumulating large funds, which they often invested and they became. Uh, heavily invested in land and other and real estate in the major cities, um, so the Catholic Church, uh, thanks to uh, taxes paid by the Chinese people, became a rather wealthy institution in China. Of course, that all changed when the Communists came. Huh. But up to that point, uh, it'd be interesting to to sort of track that down more
0: fully. Anyway, that's one of the thoughts I have about what I would do. Well, that that sounds fascinating to me because I I work in um about the same time period as you're doing on Korean Catholicism, where the church was extraordinarily poor. Um, they had very little money because they yeah. they had no no boxer yeah. indemnity or or and the uh, French um, did, were not interested in having a protector yeah. in Korea. Yes, so they they were uh, having yeah. a hard time yeah. there. Yes, it's quite a different story, I think, in
1: Korea. Yeah, you know, what little I know about it, but I would mm-hmm. like to see your, your what you've done with that
0: oh yeah I'd be happy to share it well thank you again um, for taking the time to be with us today and uh, have a good day Dr. Young and I would encourage the readers go out this is a great book um, and have a look at it bye bye you have been listening to the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network this is Dr. Franklin Rausch one of the hosts of this channel I just want to thank you for listening and hope you'll come back again soon